Welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we like to talk a lot and answer questions, because that's what we're doing today. I am Karen Peterson, joined as always by Lauren Humphreys-Brooks. You almost said Lauren the Great, didn't you? I was trying to figure (laughs) out how to fit it in with your last name. I was like, I can't say Lauren the Great Humphreys-Brooks. I am the Great Humphreys-Brooks. I am the greatest. (laughs) I am the only true-born Humphreys-Brooks, actually. (laughs) The original. Well, how are you? I'm good. (laughs) Excellent. I'm glad to hear it. So, um, yeah, this week we thought it'd be fun. We do have some new listeners. We have some people who've been listening for a while that we realized... You probably don't know a lot about us, except for that we have a lot of very smart ideas and opinions. So we thought we'd use this opportunity to answer your questions that could be about anything. And they end up, for the most part, centering on a couple of very specific topics. So I guess some of you do know us better than, you know, we might have thought. But um, uh, anyway, so yeah, we're just going to get started. So just to, to start us out. Lauren, why don't you tell folks just a little brief bio about you and and kind of what led you to where you are today? <laughs> I feel like we did this way, way, way back when, like the beginning of this podcast, like yeah, like two. five years ago. Yeah, <laughs> and and now I'm like, oh, how has the world changed since then? Well, a lot. We were uh... <laughs> sweet summer children because you know that when we recorded that episode, we didn't even know the Harvey Weinstein news yet. Yeah, it was like it, it was like I think the 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 fifth episode, episode or something. Mm-hmm. Okay, episode four. There we go. Yeah, it was when Harvey Weinstein broke it. It was like, oh, so that's what this is about now. Okay, uh, yep. great, great. Totally changed the trajectory of our our whole podcast. So it absolutely did. Trajectory. I just said projectory. Like projectory. See, I'm words well, are hard. <laughs> pro, but I, I actually think that that works, even though that that's not a word, because, you know, you're projecting into the future and it's the arc of the projection. I like it. I like it. <laughs> We're going to use that. We just coined a new word right here. You heard it here first, folks. Projectory. Projectory. <laughs> I'm adding it. I'm calling Webster after we're done. <laughs> I'm going to be certain that that is not, in fact, a word. Maybe it is. <laughs> it probably know. means something else. <laughs> It's the trajectory of the the project. I don't know. No, that's you don't need that. Okay. Yes. Uh, so I am Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Obviously, by day I I am a freelance editor. I edit like books for people, manuscripts. Um, by also by day I shout about things on Twitter, including like complaining about men, but also talking about like wonderful men that I like. So there's that too. What types of uh, books do you edit? What types of books do I edit? I, I do everything, actually. Um, I do a lot of fiction, uh, primarily sci-fi fantasy. Um, 
that cool. tends to be that's that's something because that's where my some of my interests lie but also just in terms of the projects that i've gotten i have a longer um sort of list of sci-fi fantasy also a little mystery thriller uh some you know literary fiction i've got a whole bunch of different things but um but now it's primarily sci-fi fantasy at the beginning of my career it was actually romance and erotica uh which was basically means that nothing can embarrass me uh i've read everything like anything that you can send me i like i've definitely read that before um <laughs> good to Good in terms of film, I went to uh, film school at, at, at NYU Tisch uh, for film studies, not like film production. Um, so I'm very interested in the academic side of film, especially scholarship side and feminist film criticism generally and Hitchcock in particular. I know that this is something people don't realize about me, but I like Hitchcock. What? <laughs> Since when? I know, shocking. And I do... To answer the question that was posed on our own uh, on our own Twitter page, I do have a tattoo of Hitchcock. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's just the profile on my forearm, but well, I've seen a picture of it and it looks pretty cool. It does. It does. I love it. I love it. So that's me. What about you, Karen? Who are awesome. you? Oh man, who am I? Well, I have two jobs. I am an awards editor for We Live Entertainment, or the awards editor. There's only one, and it's me. Um, and that's that comes after I had been with Award Circuit for about seven years, and then Clayton sold out and went to Variety. Good for him. I'm really, really happy for him, actually. But, um, but it was a big, fat bummer for me, because I loved working at Award Circuit. And um, and we really built something cool there. So going to a different site, it was like, I don't know, it's just been a, a weird year and a half or so, but, um, but it's great. I love, um, I, well, it's getting harder now, but I've always loved awards and I totally recognize that there's a lot of problems with awards, but I've just been fascinated by, by them. The big one being the Oscars. I've been watching the Oscars since I was like in junior high school. And so, um, I am not one that gets all caught up in like butt hurt when my favorite people don't win because I understand it's a game and there's a lot of money involved and a lot of reasons why people vote for stuff. But, um, but yeah, I, I just, I just enjoy the journey. Film Twitter has made that a little less fun, but you know, they make everything a little less fun. So. Film Twitter has, yeah, film Twitter has made film a little less fun. There are times when I'm just like, I don't think I like movies anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, we're going to talk about that a little bit more later, because one of the questions I'm actually going to talk about this, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, so that's my movie life. In my non-movie life, I run a college tutoring center, and I... Um, I really enjoy that. I have, you know, a bunch of employees that report to me. I, I co-run it. I have, there's a faculty person who also oversees the work and we work very well together. Um, but it's, it's, I like that side of things because it really helps me understand. It's funny because it actually kind of in some ways helps me understand film Twitter because I'm working with college students. And so it helps remind me of like, okay, this is what kids these days are talking about because I'm a little older than they are and uh it, it really helps to understand and, and keep 
kind of up to date on what's current in culture, not just in like movies or what movies I like, but what are what are the kids talking about? What are the kids? How are they talking about it? What social media do they gravitate toward? And what are their interests? What are their concerns just with the world and stuff? So it's actually pretty cool to it's a it's a weird combination of, of careers, but it's actually kind of a, a cool one, too. So. I enjoy that. I did not study film in school. I took a film class. Uh, it was French film class, but I majored in political science and French, which is where the French film class came from. So, uh, oui, je parle français. Um, and yeah, I I enjoy film a lot. I've always, I've, I mean, I grew up basically at the movie theaters. So when I was a kid, even though I live in Southern California, when I was a kid. It was kind of a, when you didn't have anything to do, you just went to the movies. And so I spent a lot of time at the theater. So I'm very self-taught. I've read a lot of books, but I'm very self-taught, I guess. And um, so, which is why it's funny whenever those kerfluffles come up about, you know, like education and what what people should know if they're going to write about film. Um whenever I say that people should be educated, there's this weird assumption from some that I'm saying you have to have a degree in it. And why would I say that? Cause I do not. So, uh, but I do think that you need to be educated and there's lots of ways to get educated without having a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think there's a lot of value in getting that degree. And I love that, that that's the path that you chose. So yeah. So that's a little bit about me. Awesome. Yeah. I didn't know that I knew that you took political science. I did not know that you actually that you also did uh, a major in French. Yeah. So my original plan was actually go to law school and everyone who wants to go to law school majors in political science or history or, you know, like English. Mm-hmm. And so I was minoring in French and I realized I only needed three more classes to do the major. So I was like, well, why wouldn't I just do three more classes and then have a whole degree and then stand out a little bit more when I'm doing law school applications? So that was the plan. And then I mm-hmm. took the LSAT and it didn't go well. And I was like, yeah, I, 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 I also had a professor who told me I would do terrible in law school because I was not <laughs> motivated, which should have made me want to go like, well, fuck you. I'm going to do it and I'm going to rock because I could have. But then I realized, no, he's, he's actually right. <laughs> I didn't ever tell him, but I was like, no, he's right. I don't, I don't want, I don't like to study that much. I don't think I want to do that. So I didn't go, <laughs> but I still speak French. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Um, so that's who we are. That is who we are. I mean, obviously that's not all that we are because we are many things. We contain multitudes. <laughs> We do. So, um, but we have some great questions that we got from from uh, so many of you, and we're excited to get going on this. So let's start. Well, actually, you know what? I have one for you before we get started. All right. Um, I know I just asked you a question. Who are you? But um, let's just <laughs> jump in with what was the last movie or TV show that you watched before recording this episode? Uh, that would be... Wait, let me think about it. Um... 
That would actually be Aquafina is Nora from Queens. Oh, how is that? I've been meaning to watch that show. I I really like it. You know, I think I think that you have to you have to enjoy Aquafina, obviously. Um, I do, and and you have to enjoy her kind of brand of humor. Some of it is really gross. Some of it is is gross and funny. Some of it is just funny. Um, I I really like it. Like it's it's a bizarre show and it kind of goes in interesting directions. It's interesting because the last episode I think of season two, which is all the seasons that we have so far is the start of the, um, is it on the show, the coronavirus pandemic begins. And it's interesting to see that um, given, you know, like everything uh, because, because I was like, oh, yeah, it's, it was weird. It was weird. And this is like New York in, in basically the beginning of 2020. Right. And it's like, this is, this is strange. I'd forgotten how strange this all was, but um, I do like the show a lot. It's very funny. Her grandmother is the funniest person on the planet. Um, and I absolutely adore her. I love the fact that BD Wong is like, actually has a, a more leading role now. Um, and I do enjoy Aquafina a great deal. So you you kind you gotta like her. You've got to enjoy her stuff. But if you do, I think that you'll like it. Awesome. Yeah, I I really do want to watch that show. I I've been meaning to for a long time. I know it's been out for a couple of years, but um, yeah. I last night I took my mom to see the black and white release of Nightmare Alley, Guillermo del Toro's film, and I have seen it. It was so funny because I was talking to someone like when we were standing outside the theater and he was like, you haven't seen this before. And I was like, no, I've seen it twice, but I haven't seen it in black and white. So it is so stunning. Like that movie is just so beautiful. And I, I was a little bit worried that because the colors of the color version are so just eye catching and, and just like those beautiful peacock blues and golds and reds and you know it's just such such a beautiful color palette that i thought oh this is gonna really lose something when you take all that away but what i and i don't know why i thought that but um yes i do love black and white film but uh it actually was interesting watching it afterwards like in in just the black and white color because it um it made different things stand out that I hadn't noticed the first time, like little details that I was like, oh, I didn't see that when it was, you know, colorized or whatever. So it just, it made it feel like a very different movie. It definitely lent more to that noir feel and, but it's still just such a, such an incredible, just beautiful film. Kate Blanchett is <laughs> just to die for. I, I just, I love her so much. And she's so great in that film. So great in that role. And it just was like, she really is a vampire. She is timeless. She could have lived in any era and have fit perfectly in that. And, um, she is perfection. So yeah. Anyway, beautiful. If you've already seen the movie and you have the chance to watch it in black and white, I highly recommend it. If you haven't seen the movie yet, watch it either way. Cause you can't go wrong. I am so mad that you've seen this movie three times now and I still have not seen it once. And I am going to see it. We're going to, I think we're going to have to talk about it next week. So I'm seeing it next week uh, when it's out on, um, when it finally comes out on, I think HBO max. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and yes. So I am annoyed. (laughs) I I would apologize except for that. I'm, 
not really sorry. I mean, I'm sorry that you haven't seen it. I'm not sorry that I've seen it three times. <laughs> you, I feel like you've taken it from me in some way, Karen. It's like, it's like, no, no, you see it three times. That means I can never see it or something. I don't know. <laughs> no, but if anybody is looking for the tickets, if you go to, like, I saw it at just a Regal. It's also playing at AMCs across the country. And it's Nightmare, it's like most of them have, because it's doing a re-release this weekend. So you can see Nightmare Alley. Or if you look for Nightmare Alley, A Vision in Darkness and Light, that's the black and white one. So, Yeah. All right. So let's get into our listener questions because we got some good ones. So from just to start off, this is at, I don't know how to say that name, Tifa Vidal? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I've been getting more into film lately and i was wondering if you have any book recommendations or other resources to start to study film so lauren you actually majored in it so why don't you start us off and then i will supplement with some of the books that i've read i yes i do i do i have a graduate degree in in film so i'm always just like i've got a master's degree um (laughs) but i I, remember this is beginner so go back to your 101 classes (laughs) Well, that's why the the first recommendation that I have are two books, actually. It's Film Art and On the History of Film Style by David Bordwell and, um, and Kristen Thompson. And the reason why I recommend those is not because I think I particularly like Bordwell and Thompson as critics. Um, I think that their actual analysis of film isn't that great, but the these are basically really good standard textbooks for studying film, for kind of understanding different film movements, for and just for understanding the composition of film. So understanding the way that shots are composed, um, things to look for when you're watching a movie and when you're actually trying to analyze it um, critically uh, for particular elements, for particular content. Um, they do a really good breakdown. One of the good things about their, their books as well is that they use a lot of stills um, so you're not just reading through like blocks of text where you have, you know, an author kind of explaining things to you or saying like, you know, here's what a cross cut is, um, here, here's what a close up is, et cetera. You're actually getting still images so that you can understand, so you can follow as well as possible um, in book format, uh, the, the, um, what they're talking about. So they're really good resources and it's really good to just have those books and to kind of read through them. It's one of the first things that gets assigned. Um, I know one of the first things that we were told to buy in my master's program. There are probably also other ones that are now more standard textbooks. It was, it's been a while since I took my, since I did my master's, but I still think that these guys are, they're, give you a very solid foundation. Um, in terms of of like film theory, uh, I always think that going for the the sort of compendiums are the best because you can get a very good overview of different kinds of theories um, and different approaches to film. A lot of film theory is based in literary theory, um, art theory, and art history. Uh, And then depending upon what you're actually interested in, various other um, elements that go into cinema, including sound, music, things like that. So there's kind of a wide range of stuff that you can read. You can like, one of the things that we were assigned was a lot of literary theory, um, which didn't necessarily, it was very weird because there was one book and I wish I could remember the guy's name uh, that, 
his specialty is actually Proust. And so we were reading all of the stuff about Proust and about perspective and about um, you know, the, the, famous, the famous scene with the Madeline dunked in the, in the tea in Swan's Way. And I remember reading this and going like, I have no idea what you're talking about because I have not read Proust. Uh, but so one of the um, one of the you're such a nerd. I am one <laughs> of the film theories, uh, theory and criticism books that I really recommend is it's called Film Theory and Criticism Introductory Readings by Browdy and Cohen. And this is just like an overview, like you've got feminist film theory, you've got Marxist theory, um, you know, the basics of kind of film form and film style, you've got kind of these um, essays by Eisenstein, essays by Truffaut, there's a lot of information contained in it. And it's a really good, again, resource to kind of ground yourself. Uh, I, I also, you know, kind of think it's, it's always good to go back to the originals. Uh, Sergei Eisenstein, who's kind of one of the founders of, of film, film theory, film conversation, and also was a great filmmaker in his own right, um, wrote a number of books. One that I recommend is Film Form. And again, these are very old. So a lot of what he's talking about has, you know, doesn't necessarily have direct applicability to contemporary cinema, but again, it's a really good foundation. I always encourage people to read From Caligari to Hitler by um, Siegfried Krakauer. Again, older book, but ridiculously and almost painfully prescient uh, in terms of the way that film constructs propaganda and the things to actually watch for in propaganda. He's focusing on German cinema, kind of pre, pre-World War II German cinema and the, the rise of Hitler, but it has so much applicability to contemporary American cinema, it's not even funny. I bought that book. I have not <laughs> read it yet, but I bought it. <laughs> you can even, you know, honestly, I remember when we were assigned it, um, we basically were just told to read the introduction where he kind of gives an overview of his his argument. And even just reading that is, I think, gives you a really good foundation for what he's talking about and how it applies to other kind, kinds of film beyond, you know, pre-World War II German cinema. Hmm. Cool. Any others? The final one is The Dread of Difference. That's a feminist film theory uh, addressing horror. And I, I, because I particularly like horror films, I love that book. And again, you get a lot of stuff. You get Barbara Creed's essay about the monstrous feminine, um, excerpts from like Carol Clover's books, Linda Williams. And again, it's specifically about horror cinema, but I think that, that these are also seminal texts for feminist film theory themselves. So it's, it's important to actually get to read those. And again, you've got this, this good compendium that you can skip essays if you want to. Um, you could go read more essays by, by the authors. Uh, you could actually investigate them. And I could always recommend Hitchcock books, but those are very specific to Hitchcock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I am very much a believer that if you're going to get into film, and you're, I, I know you are too, um, but if you're going to get into film, that you really need to understand film history. And uh, I think the Caligari book, even though, like I said, I haven't, actually read it but i think that's a great place to to start um for not even not start but to really understand uh, a key moment in history i recently read a book called pink slipped which is about women in early hollywood and how basically women were the ones that they got hollywood off its feet and um and then kind of what happened to them as a result because back before 1920 
director and um, producer were two of the biggest jobs for women in Hollywood. So this kind of talks, goes pretty in depth into what happened and talks about some very specific women like Alice Guy and Lois Weber and um, some of some of the women that we've talked about here on this podcast. So it's a, a great resource. But then, um, and I, I love your theory books. The other thing that I think has been monumentally helpful for me is just reading about, I haven't ever tried to make a film, but reading about the craft of filmmaking and understanding what goes into it. So reading things like the screenwriter's Bible to understand how a screenplay works, um, reading memoirs from people like Sidney Lumet has one called, uh, what's it called? Making movies, I think. Um, lots of, you know, there's lots of them out there. And so I think reading Sidney Lumet's book is specifically like, it's partly, it's kind of like Stephen King's book on writing where it's partly a memoir. So he's telling, you know, anecdotes and things about specific times when he was making specific movies, but he also talks about his philosophy on filmmaking and um, specific choices and and things like that. So it's a, it's a great resource uh, and just really interesting. And so I think there's a lot of filmmakers that have stuff like that. Read about, you know, what cinematography really is. Watch a lot of interviews and not like be careful where you're going for those, because some of them are just, you know, people, the interviewers wanting to gush over work like, oh, this is so pretty. And sure it is. It's great. But watching interviews and reading interviews where um, the artists are getting to really dive into how they designed a set or how, like what went into a costume design, um, reading, you know, reading just about those elements and really learning more about what goes into all the stuff you see on that screen and everything that you don't is monumentally helpful. It it has been for me. It's been really valuable for me to, um, it's totally changed how I watch films. I was going to say, I think that it's, it's, as you're saying, mostly Lumet and, and kind of reading those memoirs and things like that. It's always good to like find a director or an actor, someone that you really like mm-hmm. and kind of go in depth on their filmography and on their work and on books about them. Like, like yeah. I say, I'm, I've been, I was very lucky in the sense that the major director that I have pretty much loved my entire life is Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. And there is no lack of Hitchcock books. Some of them are good. Some of them are not so good. Um, but there's always like something to read about them. That's, that's always good to like find someone that speaks to you and then really begin to, to read about them and how they put movies together and, um, different books about them and different analyses of them. That's a good, a good window also into, uh, studying more about film. Yeah. Yeah. And it can really open your eyes. Like we've talked about this in the past too, where when you understand one filmmaker and you really study about them, like, like specifically with Hitchcock, when you understand the, the building of his career, you also learn about who, who he learned from. And so then you can go back and watch their films and it just gives you a deeper, uh, deeper dive, I guess, into the, the, the path that has gone to create, you know, to lead to where we are now, you know, like the directors that are making movies now were inspired by directors that came before them. Some of them are still working. Some of them are not, and they've passed on, but it, it, if you just 
take the time to really learn a filmmaker and then learn who they learned from and who inspired them and kind of where they even wanted to make movies in the first place. That can be such an interesting wealth of information. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, Michelle at Gangcock Mitch, she submitted a question, um, that she did ask before, uh, and we were not able to give a good answer because we had not seen the movie. So I rectified that this week. Uh, her question was, uh, I don't watch many older classic movies outside of the musical genre, but one I've seen in love is stage door. So would enjoy hearing your thoughts on the movie as well as its incredible cast. So, um, I did watch stage door this week, Michelle. Thank you so much for asking that question again, because it's one that I'd been meaning to watch and just hadn't gotten around to it. Um, but this gave me a good, uh, good opportunity to, to do that. So have you, have you still not seen it? No, I've seen stage door. Yeah. Oh, you have. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I have seen it and I do, I do remember certain elements of it certainly. Okay. Yeah. So this is from 1937. It was directed by Gregory LaCava and it stars Catherine Hepburn and Ginger Rogers, um, bunch of other people too. Andrea Leeds was nominated for an Oscar for it. Uh, Lucille Ball is in it. And so basically the, the film is about girls that are trying to make it on stage, like make it on Broadway and they're living together in a, um, what's the word? Not a sorority house. Yeah. Boarding (laughs) house. Boarding house. Thank you. I just blanked on that word. Um, But yeah, they're living together in a boarding house and, you know, going off to auditions. Sometimes they're up for the same roles and everyone's kind of at different points in their career. They also have different goals for their careers. Um, And that's that's the general idea of of kind of the foundation of it. And what happens is Catherine Hepburn plays this woman who just shows up one day and she's just got this air about her and she's, you know, she clearly likes nice things. She clearly has some money. They assume that she's got a sugar daddy. And it turns out she's actually the daughter of a very wealthy man who is not pleased that she wants to go off and be an actress. And so it, it sets off this chain of events because he um, basically sets something up with a producer. Like, hey, give my daughter this role. She's going to totally fail at it. Um, and then she'll come back home. And uh, meanwhile, there's, you know, girls are doing whatever they need to to get ahead. And um, I don't want to give too much away. I think people should watch it if they get the chance. Um, it's not available to stream for free, but I did rent it. Um, so it was like three bucks to rent it. So uh, I I enjoyed it. So I'm glad, Michelle, that you asked this question again because... Um, Cause yeah, I really enjoyed it. I liked the personalities a lot. I liked, you know, diving into this world of, of, of these women and really getting to, um, getting to see the, the heartaches and the, the fun, but also the, the difficulty of, of this kind of life. And the fact that all these girls, even the, the, background characters who don't really have big arcs or anything like they all have very distinct personalities they each kind of get their little moments to shine and it was a little bit surprising that we had this film that deals with um you know a lot of a lot of issues that 
were real, but this is like early in the production code. So it's like, I don't know. It just, it was interesting the way that it handles, um, things like the casting couch idea and, um, it's similar in a, it's similar in a lot of ways to um there are a number of films particularly early early 30s basically um mm -hmm. that are are kind of stage door stage door musicals yeah uh where they're they're about the background of um or stage door films that that are about the background what's going on behind the scenes in a theatrical company or a theater and it's always you get this you know even the films like gold diggers of 1933 things like that mm -hmm. um are basically about you know this cast of characters and the things that they experience ginger rogers seems to appear in a lot of them she does yeah um <laughs> Uh, and and kind of the various things that they have to go through. And yeah, this, this idea about these women working really hard to get ahead and basically doing anything that they have to do or that they feel they have to do and how that can lead them down really bad avenues and also how that can give them great success. Um, but, yeah, but this one is one of the most famous ones and I had completely forgotten that um, Lucille Ball has a small role in it and so does like eve miller or uh -huh. eve arden yeah. and ann yeah. miller mm -hmm. uh gail patrick like these are and so this is like a lot of people kind of at the beginning of their careers at that time rogers and um uh kate hepburn would have been pretty well known but you know lucille ball no one knew who lucille ball was at this at this time yeah it would be another five or six years before she was really starting to to make a name for herself mm -hmm. so but she has a not insubstantial role. Like she, she appears a lot. She has a big, big uh, thing at the end. So, yeah. Um, I, I'm really glad. Like I said, I'm really glad I watched this movie. It was, it was interesting. It really does uh, touch on some important subjects. I was surprised because there was one point where I was like, oh, "Does this have a female screenwriter?" Screenwriter because it kind of feels like it did, and then. It does not, but it was uh, adapted from a play that was co-written by a woman. So I was like, oh, there it is. <laughs> There's always a woman in there. <laughs> yep. <laughs> when it when they're doing it right, there's a woman yep. involved. <laughs> you can just you can just tell. So yeah, so um, yeah, like I said, really good personalities, really uh, emotional, but uh, and and definitely heartbreaking sometimes. And um, watching. You know, watching the way that the women start off very suspicious of, of, of Hepburn's character and, and the way she kind of wins them over and learning more about her background and, and, you know, like the way that it drives empathy is, is good. It's, it's believable. It's, uh, you know, in many ways relatable. So yeah, really good film. All right. Let's see. Okay, so next we have. This is from at Priya Prism Z. Priya Prisms, maybe? Uh, sorry. If you could eliminate any film movement from history, what would it be? You know, I when when I saw this question, I was like, I'm gonna look up film movements. Like, and so I, I looked up <laughs> film movements, and I was like, oh, okay, you know, like, because I know a lot of them, but there are a whole bunch that just I don't have any association with. Um, I've got two. Okay. <laughs> One of them is gonna be way less popular with our listeners than, than the other. <laughs> I what has Dog May '95 really contributed to cinema? Nothing. Nothing. Lars von Trier, and we really can do without him. So. 
I, I would say we can eliminate Dogma 95 uh, as a film movement. I co-sign on that, actually. That was the one I picked. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's just like, it, I mean, it's fine, whatever, you know, I don't, I don't care that much, but I, I, don't, I don't see that it has really given us much um, beyond, you know, a couple of films that I don't particularly like. Uh, the other one that I wanted to say, and this is going to be unpopular, is I think we should just eliminate the French New Wave. What? <laughs> That's unpopular with me. What? You can't just eliminate the French New Wave. I think no. I think that we could just eliminate the French New Wave. I honestly think that it set cinema off in the wrong direction in a lot of ways, particularly art house cinema, and has essentially resulted resulted in a lot of different things. But among them, the prizing of the director, the treatment of the director as the sole art like artist behind cinema. Um, and also just the incredible pretensions of a lot of those films. And yes, we're going to lose some good films, but also we don't have to deal with Godard anymore. Uh, and, mm, and there is that. <laughs> and a lot, a lot of those films just to me feel, I under, I absolutely understand where they come from. And in some ways I'm making a joke here because I don't, at the end of the day, I don't think that any of these movements should necessarily be eliminated, but I think that art house film in particular, independent cinema in particular, would be a lot more interesting now if we didn't have the kind of codification of it in the French New Wave. The friend, And part of the problem is that the French New Wave was so influential that um, it feels like we basically can't escape it anymore at an at a, at a independent cinema level. But Lauren, if we got rid of French New Wave, who would film Twitter bros look to for their <laughs> proof that they like female directors if they did not have Agnes Varda? <laughs> well, see, that's the thing. Then it's just like, oh, you want to get rid of Agnes Varda? It's like, uh, no, but also I'd love to get rid of Godard, so. Yeah, yeah. There is that. So the other one that I was going to say is actually not on the list that we were looking at, but... um. It is the one that we're currently in that involves fans getting to dictate movies that get made or how they get made or, you know, just basically directing to the fan. I'm tired of that. I'm like, I feel like it started a few years ago with the rise of Legion M, which is like, mm -hmm. and, and also Kickstarter in some ways. Kickstarter a little bit less because that was really just people wanting to support the filmmakers that they loved and like, here you go. Here's we're, yes. I want a Veronica Mars movie. I'm going to donate money. So it gets made, you know, that's kind of where that started, but it just became something else. It became because I'm giving money to you. Now I want to dictate how you're going to make this film. I don't just trust you as my film favorite film, blah, favorite filmmaker. I have some notes, you know, and I'm just, this needs to stop. This is how we ended up with the atrocious Ghostbusters afterlife that just happened and, you know, a lot of other things. And it's just let filmmakers make their films. Let them let them be great. Let them fail. But, you know, I don't want to see another situation like what happened with the third Star Wars trilogy. Mm -hmm. Um because it's just it's that's part of why people have just gotten so mean and it's a big reason why film twitter has gotten so toxic is that people have decided that fandom mean equals ownership and so now the big studios who are not willing to take chances on you know smaller and lesser known directors and filmmakers and stuff they're bowing to 
quote unquote fans. And that's, that is the movement that I would most like to quash. Well, and, and it doesn't ultimately result in particularly good films. Unsurprisingly. No, and usually a lot of the, it's terrible films. And a lot of the time, the fans themselves are dissatisfied. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, except for a very small cadre, maybe, but so they like insist upon things and then they come out with, you know, um, whatever it's called, Rise of Skywalker uh, yeah. or, or the Ghostbusters Afterlife. And you actually get the response that fans are like, oh, I don't like this, though. It's mm-hmm. like, here are all the things that are wrong with it. So it, it's kind of like, when well, you try to please everybody, you end up pleasing nobody. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like you're, it, and it is, it's pandering. Like, let's call it what it is. It's pandering. Yeah. You're, and it's pandering, not just to fans generally, but to a very specific kind of fan, very toxic kind of fan, because only the most toxic kind of fans insist that um, their favorite, you know, director, their favorite franchise, whatever, pander to them. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you wind up listening to probably the worst elements of fandom and coming out with stuff that people don't like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so stop it. Just stop it. Uh, the next question actually is from at Danny Rat. If you could take over the entire film industry for one year, what would you do? Well, first <laughs> of all, I'd stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I think we answered that one. <laughs> But no, I also, if I took over the entire industry, I would immediately, like, I would set up teams of people that their whole goal is just greenlight the most awesome ideas and like, oh, you only need 15 grand to make your movie? Here you go. Here's 15 grand. Go make your movie. You know, you want more? Come back, you know? Um, for for artists, you know, for women, for people of color, for, you know, black filmmakers, black filmmakers who are very popular and have been nominated for Oscars and still can't get movies made, you know, again, like I would just throw open the doors basically and just loosen a lot of money. I would stop with all the franchise building and just like, just let creativity abound because people complain. This is, it's such a frustrating circle because my friends who are not in the film industry, They'll complain that everything's the same. It's just a bunch of sequels. But then that's all they will actually give their money to go see. So if we just took sequels out of the equation for a while, and they didn't have that option, then they would try new stuff. And I think it would we would all be better for it. <laughs> I, I agree with all of that. My addition to it, because apparently there are some people on Twitter who, who think that I have this power. Um, <laughs> so you know what? I'm going to take that power if I'm going to take over the entire film industry. I would stop cis straight men from making any movies about violence against women yeah period yeah. like just 100 percent. no you are not allowed to mm-hmm. uh just for a little while it doesn't have to be forever you know a year yeah, for right? one year let's just like you know just stop that and and again i want to be very specific here i'm talking about violence against women i am not talking about other things mm-hmm. um because honestly Honestly, I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of uh, of this this cycle of getting to watch women be brutalized and fetishized for it. Um, and I just, I don't want to see it anymore. Even the most well-meaning of the male filmmakers who attempt this never seem to get it right. And uh, yeah, so they get to stop. Exactly. Agree. Uh, so basically, Hollywood, we're ready to take the keys. Hand it over. Absolutely. We're here, we're ready some, to do it. Make some great movies. Oh my gosh. Could you imagine? It'd be amazing. <laughs> All right. At M. Subject. 
I've only listened to your latest episode, so apologies if you've answered this, but have you watched Yellow Jackets or Dexter New Blood? I have watched both. Lauren, how about you? I've not seen any of Dexter New Blood. That is, um, that made it sound like it was his last name. Dexter, <laughs> colon, New Blood. Uh, <laughs> because I, I never watched Dexter. It just wasn't my thing um, when it was on and it, was, it just never really appealed to me. I have been watching Yellow Jackets. Now, uh, no spoilers pour moi because yes, I'm so not, excited. <laughs> I have not seen all of the episodes yet, but I have started watching it and I do like love it. Like I, I think that it's very good. Not least because you get to see people like Christina Ricci and Melanie Linsky and Juliette Lewis like doing their thing. And I do enjoy those actresses, but I think it's just very well put together so far and, and nicely balanced. I like the fact that in the midst of this horror there's a good bit of humor to it um it's 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 really good so far oh my gosh i'm so excited the first episode i was watching it i was like lauren 100 percent needs to watch this show (laughs) it was made for you (laughs) so I, i yeah i love it i love the cast i love the story it's great i am so freaking excited for season two so yeah um, and then Dexter New Blood, I did watch the original show. I was a big fan of the first five seasons, like most people. Actually, a lot of people say only the four, but I think season five is actually very good. Uh, it just is unfortunate that it comes after one of the best seasons of television ever. Um, so it was just unfortunate timing, but it's actually a great season. Um, but six, seven, and eight obviously fell way, way off the ledge. Um, and so for me, Dexter New Blood was, um, it did do that course correction that they really needed. And I think that the arc of it, I enjoyed, I, I don't think it's perfect, but it's so, 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 so much better than, uh, the last three seasons of the original show that even the missteps I can very much forgive because what it does right, it, it, it really does. So uh, yeah. And Yellow Jackets rocks, and I want it to win all the Emmys. Except for that it won't, because Succession's also fucking good. <laughs> so... Which I still haven't watched either. That's been on my list for, for some time, too. You know, it, it's such an interesting show. I did not think I would like it, and it's one that I really shouldn't, because I hate I hate when there's no one to root for, and I hate casts where everyone just sucks and they're all terrible people. And yet I just am so drawn into this world that it's it's so watchable. Like, I want them all to fail, but I enjoy watching it. <laughs> well, I, I think that there's a sort of pleasure in, in stories yeah. like that where you're just like, I'm not feeling really like, you know, there's not that tension of like, oh, no, my favorite character might suffer. It's more like, yes, let them all suffer. Yes, yes. please. Yes. Oh, something oh, bad God. happened to you. Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, so we got a couple of questions from Noah Saturn. Uh, the first one is, who is one actor that immediately elevates any film they appear in? <laughs> Do you want me to start? Yes. All right. I will start. Peter O'Toole. Oh. Um, and I say this because I watched a lot of Peter O'Toole movies, and uh, and he has been in some really bad movies. I'm telling you, yeah. uh, he's also been in some great ones. I mean, he was in you know Lawrence of Arabia, he was in How to Steal a Million. Um, he did some great films as an older man. Like so, he he's a great actor in a lot of ways. 
but that's that's what I like about him that he, even though he's done some truly terrible films, he really did always lift it up. There was always this, you know, this archness to it, this humor to what he was doing. Um, and and he also was one of those actors, I think, who respected his own work uh, in, in that even though when he was making a bad movie, he was still trying to be good in it. He was still trying to do justice to it as much as he possibly could. He wasn't just phoning it in. Um, so he's definitely one that I think kind of lifts everything. The other one is Vincent Price. I mean, come on. <laughs> Vincent Price makes everything delightful. So mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I have three that are all more modern. Uh, Regina King, because she is that way. Like, every role that she's in, even if the movie is not great, she's just so much fun to watch. Like, she's uh, she can be really funny. She can be really heartfelt and emotional. Like, she can do the whole range, and she's always compelling on screen. Turns out she's also a kick-ass director, and y'all should watch uh, One Night in Miami. Uh, I think it's still, yeah, it's on Amazon Prime. So if you haven't seen that one, oh my gosh, watch it. Anyway, um, so her and Kate Blanchett, because she's still on yes. my mind after seeing Nightmare Alley again last <laughs> night. Like, oh my gosh. And then um, speaking of Yellow Jackets, Melanie Linsky. Every movie, every TV show, every time she pops up on screen, instantly it's better. She has been underrated for mm -hmm. so long. Like, and I think because she she is she's a character actress right yeah. like and and there there are actually fewer character actresses now than there used to be but she really does just kind of lift everything even when it's terrible mm -hmm. yeah exactly and it's just a coincidence that i picked two people that are like fighting over sort of leonardo dicaprio in don't look up <laughs> <laughs> he's actually with two women that are age appropriate what that's see that's terribly unrealistic though i know basically. i know it's acting anyway uh noah's other question was why is hitchcock the best who is your favorite hitchcock leading man lady and villain and why is brian de palma always the worst version of hitchcock what is your favorite hitchcock film made after psycho so he had a lot of questions but anyway <laughs> All Hitchcock related, and I love All it. Hitchcock related. Ah, uh, should I start? Um, yeah. Well, I think we can say that for the why is Hitchcock the best question, you can go back and listen to our Hitchcock episode, because I think yeah. we answer that pretty uh, pretty soundly. Maybe I'll link it in the show yeah. notes. No, uh, honestly, too, yeah, because I, I think that we did, we did go into a lot of detail about, you know, how Hitchcock is so influential and and um such a spectacular director and he is the best like that's just face i would not get his his profile tattooed on my arm if i did not think that um this is talking about hitchcock films by the way i refuse to get into the personal like oh yeah. because you like hitchcock you're not a feminist just like fuck you just don't even <laughs> i'm not even gonna have this argument yeah. um why why is brian de palma always the worst version of hitchcock <laughs> because no well i think that some of this goes to you know some of the things we're talking about film movements and i think we're going to talk about this a little bit more in a minute as well is is you know directors aping like fans of directors basically aping other filmmakers and that's always the problem that i have with brian de palma is that he's he's aping some of the elements of hitchcock but he's not really getting into why those films work the way that they do mm -hmm. um so it just feels like a it, it feels like a copy of a copy, basically. It feels like this, 
it's okay, but it just doesn't have the same degree of power. It doesn't have the same intelligence because he's not doing anything with it. He's just repeating things. Yeah. Um, it's it's it really what it comes down to is it's pastiche because someone like Scorsese also uses techniques that Hitchcock kind of made popular or pioneered, but he doesn't ape Hitchcock. He's not like ah now I'm going to make my own version of you know um, rope or rear window. He he's like no I'm going to use elements of this to tell my own stories. Mm-hmm. And and so I think that that's why Brian De Palma fails because he's a mediocre director at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, he's just not that good. Mm-hmm. So uh, true. What are the other questions? Favorite Hitchcock leading man, lady, and villain. Uh, leading man is definitely Cary Grant. I mean, oh, for sure. You can't you can't go wrong with Cary Grant, especially across his oeuvre with Hitchcock. Um, I think my f- I have a lot of different favorite Hitchcock leading ladies. I really love Margaret Lockwood in um, The Lady Vanishes. I was uh, totally thinking her, yeah. She's she's a great she's a great kind of filter for the audience, I think, and she's an interesting character because she does kind of play this this part of being the um the, the sort of privileged woman, right? But she shows a great deal of depth and intelligence within that. And very quickly, as soon as you're introduced to her character, you know that even though she's kind of comes off as this haughty, um, haughty, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but she's that's hot. it, you know what? She's hot, she's a hottie. Uh, <laughs> even though she comes off as this, as this sort of character who's, who's superior to everybody, what it really comes down to is that she's not. She's kind of trapped in her own world and she doesn't have a lot of flexibility within it. And she escapes from it throughout the course of the film. And I really like that about her. And I, I think she, does a, she gives a great performance. Um, yeah, so I, I think probably Margaret Lockwood is up there. I love Ingrid Bergman in Notorious. Uh, she's just marvelous. And she strikes a great balance between being very vulnerable, but also being very tough and strong. Uh, and and as a result, she, she's very believable in that role. Um, yeah, so those would definitely be my villains. Um, James Mason in North by Northwest is just a delicious villain. I also love John Dahl and Farley Granger in um, Rope. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a couple of other villains that I kind of don't want to say because, <laughs> because they're not revealed to be villains. Oh, uh, okay. the, the villain in Psycho. Uh, yeah. I, I know that everybody is, is like, oh, everybody knows the ending of Psycho, but I've met so many people who don't know the ending of Psycho, and I'm like, no, I don't want to tell them then. Yeah, but definitely 100, that one would be my mine for sure. Yeah. Like, I don't, I personally, I don't think there's one that was better than that and I, a big part of that is because of how it's revealed so yeah yeah the the villainy of of the character and various characters um isn't as kind of cut and dry as you expect it to be almost and actually this you know most hitchcock films really are you know who the bad guy is right you know mm-hmm. that james mason is the villain you know that um uh, that Dahl and Granger are the villains. They're, it's very clear. You know that Thorwald is the villain uh, in Rear Window. And I have to say, I would also say Raymond Burr as Thorwald for a character oh, that, yeah. that has like three lines mm-hmm. and you only see from a distance for most of the film. He is such a <laughs> looming presence. He, it's so good. Like It's so true, yeah. 
he's such a great villain and yet we know so little about him really even when it ends like by the time it's over we don't know much more about him than we did at the beginning so yeah uh what's your favorite hitchcock film made after psycho lady vanishes as i've said before oh you mean late made oh. after psycho yeah see that i just realized like i don't know that's funny because i don't know how he meant that well i would say um, i I think Psycho, it's after, like, like chronologically after Psycho. Chronologically after Psycho. Um, family plot, I think. I was about to say Frenzy, but I'm like, Frenzy is so deeply unpleasant in so many ways, even though it's a great film. Um, I don't like rewatching it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Probably Family Plot. I think that Family Plot is a great kind of coda to Hitchcock's career. And, um, and it ends on, it means that his career ends on this very quirky, funny, weird little film. Uh, and I think that that's, it's a wonderful capper. Cool. I have not, I still have not watched Family Plot. And I know I have until like Monday to watch it on Criterion, but. Do it! I know, I will, I will, I will. Um, but I, I, I love the birds. I really do. It's such a weird movie, but it's so good. And I feel like I'm living in it because we have a major crow problem here like i I don't know what it is um well it's not so much like right here in my neighborhood but i you know some of the places around where it's like every night at dusk the crows just descend and they're everywhere and it really does feel like oh this must have inspired the movie because this has apparently been a problem for decades (laughs) around southern california so But it's very trying, creepy and ominous. I'm trying to remember, are crows ever actually involved in... It's seagulls that start They're everything. birds, yeah. They're yeah. birds, but it just it feels very much like... Crow, like... Crows are involved. The scene with the um the playground. The playground, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. just had... It's like, that's one of the most famous shots, of course. No, I'm a terrible <laughs> Hitchcock person. My God. How dare you? <laughs> anyway, um, so William Bibiani asked... Let's say you took Alfred Hitchcock out of film history altogether. His films, his influence, the genre he helped define simply never got made by anyone. What would movies look like today? What would the industry look like today? What would criticism look like today? Very boring. <laughs> I think. No, I, I mean, I think that we talk a lot about Hitchcock. One of the reasons why Hitchcock has been... has survived why his films have survived for so long in ways that a lot of other directors from the same period who had not quite maybe not quite the same level of fame but certainly of influence um the one of the reasons why his films have survived is because they have influenced so much of later cinema that they've kind of become almost these these seminal texts of certainly of um of Anglo-American cinema, if not more worldwide. I've, I've even seen, uh, I saw a Nigerian film a couple of years ago that was a, that was basically a riff on Rear Window. Um, and, and so th- there is such, he does, he did have such far reaching influence. I think that, you know, cinema would have continued. It's not like, you know, Hitchcock being taken out of the equation would have just decimated the cinematic industry. Um, but you know, I even, it's difficult for me to imagine because I was even thinking about, well, you know, you'd still have people like Michael Powell making films like Peeping Tom, but I don't know if you would, to be totally honest, because you would still have Michael Powell, but I don't know if you would have made films like Peeping Tom or, um, 
uh, Clouseau making uh, Diabolique. Like there was all of this dialogue going into the, particularly the production of thrillers and of mystery films that um, just would never have happened basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's funny because when I first read the question, I was like, I was thinking, well, you know, like think about whenever you have an idea for something and then some point later someone makes that and you never talked to them. You never really talked to anybody about it. Like we all kind of, a lot of ideas people, multiple people will have. Nothing's really truly original. Uh, but then I read the question and I realized he actually included the caveat, like was never made by anybody. Not like just, oh, he didn't do it, but someone else had the idea. Because originally I was thinking like, well... Someone else might have come up with some similar things and it could have been worse. It probably would have been worse, but it also could have been. It's hard to imagine, but it could have been even better than what Hitchcock did. And we just kind of settled on Hitchcock. But um, but if he just didn't exist at all and and none of the, the ideas and none of the techniques and nothing that he did ever was created by anybody else, I think that... Um, I think film in general would... Yeah, I, I, honestly, I think you're right. I think it would have been quite boring. I think that it would have been a lot of just, like, drama pictures. Maybe some comedies, too. Obviously some comedies. But it just, it would have kind of, I think that the next several decades would have been a lot of, um, a lot of the same. A lot of movies like, uh, I just, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I, I I think that it would have just been a lot of like war movies and love stories and things, which are great, but you need you need those thrillers, you need the mysteries, yeah. you need you need the intrigue. And I think looking at it would have been so sad to see someone like Ryan Johnson, you know, not having Hitchcock as an influence to make the films that he's making, which are just so great. So and film criticism, I mean, I would we even have criticism if they couldn't use the word Hitchcockian? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, again, I, we were talking a little bit earlier about the French New Wave and, um, and you know, and I was also referencing Cahiers de Cinema, right? Uh, that, like, again, the influence that Hitchcock had on those filmmakers and, and it wasn't just Hitchcock, obviously, but he was a very big part of that and he was a very big influence on the development of film criticism so i don't know whether we would talk about auteur theory in the same way i don't know whether that would really be something that was so popular because hitchcock and 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 there were several other filmmakers that were kind of involved in this um demille chaplin wells those kinds of of directors really did popularize the concept of the the director as king right the director as this this major creative force behind everything and um yeah and and, and i don't know without hitchcock i don't know whether that would be whether we would have had the same conversation yeah yeah it's one of those things where we'll never really know but it's it's fun and also terrible to think about and imagine <laughs> all right so at karen m peterson asked if you were forced to choose a hitchcock film to remake with tom cruise in the lead role which one would you pick <laughs> <laughs> it's 
trying to think about this one. Um, and, and the one that I kept on coming back to actually was To Catch a Thief. Because oh. uh, I kind of feel like that he would actually fit pretty well. Not perfectly, right? I don't think he's a Cary Grant type. But I actually do think that he would fit pretty well into the role of, um, uh, of Jean Roby. And, and I think that he would be believable in that. The other one that I thought about was Rear Window, just because I would love to, like, force Tom Cruise to be confined to a room. And, like, you just have to sit here. Like, that's all you're allowed to do. And other people go out and, like, do their, do their thing, like, be his legs. Like, I think that that would be great. I would like to take this moment to point out that there is a movie where Tom Cruise just sat in one room the whole time. And that is Lions for Lambs. He was in all of his scenes with Meryl Streep, and he played a senator, and he never left his office, so there you go. But yeah, no, I actually thought of Rear Window 2 for the same reason. <laughs> like, this action star suddenly can't can't move. He's just confined to a wheelchair, and we actually be kind of funny. Um, also, yeah. also, an action star who is so known for being so kinetic, mm-hmm. and like constantly being on the move. Yeah, yeah. Um... I, I, see, he's, he's really good at, at more, like, dramatic stuff, too, though, and I think that that gets, um, forgotten, especially later, because he's done so many action movies and stuff, so I would love to see him take a crack at, at, like, Rope, or something like that, in any of those roles in Rope, I think, could be really interesting i think it'd be a fun challenge he's a little old now but 20 years ago would have been fun well, he, he could play the james stewart character in rome yeah that's true yeah I, anyway that was mine so all right um from at lh business <laughs> i love how i'm just pretending that we didn't ask each other these questions <laughs> what are karen peterson's top three or so favorite directors and what tom cruise movie hasn't had a sequel but needs one okay so uh three favorite directors i i definitely have more than three but um penny marshall is one of my very favorites i love her so much um she directed nine films and i love every one of them they're all great um of course a league of their own is her best but i really really love big and um who am i kidding i love every one of them uh i really am a big fan of taika waititi of course um but he hasn't done enough movies he needs to do more he's working on it but um but i i think that just from the early days like what he did with boy which was one of his very first films which is just such a such a beautiful and and heartfelt movie and then um hunt for the wilder people like he he's known for being hilarious and he really is very funny and really talented writer, but he also, I think what, what, uh, makes, what really makes his movie so great is, is those emotional moments that, um, you kind of almost forget about, but his movies wouldn't be the same without them. Like Jojo Rabbit takes a major tonal shift and he does it so well. Mm-hmm. It works so beautifully. So, uh, yeah, so definitely him. And then, I mean, Sorry, Lauren. I'm a child of the 80s. I've seen everything he made before, like, you know, 20 or 2000. So, um, and a lot of stuff that he's made since then. But it's Steven Spielberg. <laughs> I, I love Steven Spielberg. That. 
I love Steven Spielberg's movies. I grew up on them, and um, I really do think that he has done a lot to change film. Unfortunately, I think that that came, there came a tipping point where it became too much, and I think that there there came a point where filmmakers were relying too heavily on some of the things that he did and becoming too much like him. And he also followed suit in that. Like he's, he early in his career was really making a lot of big advances in the industry and, you know, really helping to usher in some new, uh, you know, like this new studio rise and stuff. But at some point, unfortunately he just kind of like, never really advanced like he stopped being the one that was making big moves and and trying new things and that shows but um but yeah no i Mm -hmm. et is one of my all-time favorite movies so yeah and it's a great list thank you and what tom cruise movie hasn't had a sequel but needs one so well obviously we're getting top gun 2 sometime (laughs) supposedly are you sure i think i think that's i think it's fake (laughs) i'm not sure of anything anymore um and they have supposedly promised an edge of tomorrow sequel but i have a weird thing about sequels with aliens when they defeated the aliens and then there's like a sequel years later like uh. I feel like the aliens would leave us alone if we beat them. But, uh, so it's like, I would love, I loved his character and I loved, I especially loved Emily Blunt in that movie. So I wouldn't, I would definitely show up for another one, but it's not one that I'm like pining away for. The one that I actually would love to see a sequel to, and I was just talking to someone about this recently, is Cocktail. (laughs) From the 80s. It ends with him opening his own bar, and I just would love to pick up with those characters 30 years later, and and I think it could be really fun. So, yeah. It was not a great movie. It was cheesy as hell, but I would love a sequel to that. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So, that's all the questions that we got. That was a lot of questions, and they were really good ones. So, I'm this turned out even better than I hoped it would. So, thank you all so much for for participating. Any final thoughts, Lauren? No, not really. Watch more movies, as always. And, uh, and do, you know, like, if you do have questions for us or you want us to talk about something, like, you know, send us a message, send us a tweet. We are available multitudes of ways uh, because we do, like, it's always good to get these kinds of things because we get to talk about things that maybe we wouldn't necessarily have thought of. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I, I love it. And I actually got some ideas for some upcoming episodes from some of these questions that were asked. So I'm excited. Um, I have already warned Lauren that we will be doing a top, a top bleh, Tom Cruise episode this summer because <laughs> somehow that man is turning 60 years old. I don't believe it. My brain does not understand that number, but it's happening. So Anyway, um, but lots of other cool stuff is coming, too. Um, We just launched a new, um, I don't know, a new weekly thing that we're going to be doing on our social media, which is stuff that we're recommending. So um, it's things that are available. So it's not just like, oh, hey, here's a random movie that you can't find anywhere. It's stuff that like, no, this is something that we like that you can watch this weekend. So Lauren, what was your recommendation this week? My recommendation was uh, The Trouble with Harry, 
which by the time this episode comes out, I think that it's going to be off of uh, Criterion. But even if it is off of Criterion, check it out, try to find it. Um, it, it should be in other places as well. Uh, it's it's one of my favorite Hitchcock films because it is so funny and so weird and uh, very like quirky. It's basically a movie made up of secondary characters, and I love that about it. Yeah, awesome. Uh, mine is the new Apple TV Plus show, uh, The After Party, which has uh, also it's actually kind of funny. It's also kind of a cast of supporting actors. You've got um, people who don't star in big stuff like Sam Richardson, uh, Dave Franco, Alana Glazer, uh, Ike Barinholtz, um, Tiffany Haddish. So it's basically uh, Dave Franco plays this a big time music and movie star who um, they're having their 15th high school reunion. Nobody has a 15th reunion and there's actually a 15 year reunion and there's jokes about that. And and there's a reason why, but um, so Dave Franco's character, Xavier, he's hosting an after party at his big mansion afterwards. And he ends up dead at the bottom of a cliff. So, Tiffany Haddish is one of the officers that's trying to find out if he was murdered um, or if it was an accident. And so everyone else plays people that were just at the party. And uh, each episode, it's interesting because each episode, they're they're doing things that advance the full story, but they also focus on one specific character. So um, it's a lot of fun. It's funny overtly and also just in really unexpected ways like a joke will just pop up out of nowhere where you're like oh my gosh I'm peeing my pants laughing um and it's just a fun fun show great cast the first three episodes are out now and then it's going to be released weekly for the next couple of weeks I think it's just a limited series I, I doubt that there will be a season two um but it's just a great like funny murder mystery type of thing where you're trying to guess like what really happened and, and why. So yeah. That sounds like fun. I, I will take that recommendation. Yay. So, all right. Well, thank you all so much for joining us once again. We, we really appreciate it. We just love you all so much. And we especially want to thank our patrons who are Adriana, Ali, Connor, Stefania, a new one. Thank you so much. Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Mason, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. And if you would like to join them, you can go to patreon.com slash citizen dame. Your support does help us keep our hosting and, and we have a new logo. I don't know if you've noticed, we've kind of quietly rolled it out. We're still deciding if it's the one, but, um, but changes are happening and this is all because of your support. Um, and those changes will also be visible soon on our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash pod. You can get masks and things, so make sure you wear your masks. We still got to wear masks, people. Um, and you can also throw some support our way if you'd like by going to ko-fi, co-fi.com slash citizendame. You, we love email, citizendamepod at gmail.com. And our website where we have reviews uh, is citizendamepod.com. We definitely have some reviews coming up very, uh, very soon this week. We'll have some stuff up there. It's been a while since we posted, I realized. Uh, our social media, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at citizendamepod and on Letterboxd, where we have lots of movie recommendations for you at citizendame. Lauren, where are you? 
I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at LH Business. And I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week. Bye. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth!